basically from 2018, when we started our company to now, the labor costs of anesthesiologists and CRNAs has almost tripled. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 191 of APM Success. I'm here with Dr. Brian Schmutzler. I was just saying he is one of the friendliest friends of the show that we have, this being, I think, his fourth conversation he's had on the record. He's out of South Bend, he's an anesthesiologist, he's a practice owner, and he's just one of those people that you want to know when you have any questions about how anesthesia works from a business standpoint. So, Brian, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Justin. I want to sort of get some general updates from you, but you know, the, the thing that made me most interested in reaching out to have this conversation was, and I alluded to this in a recent solo episode talking about the very significant demand we're seeing right now for anesthesia and how that's manifest for individual anesthesiologists in the locums market. And and frankly, in any W-2 role, like literally anywhere you're looking for a job, what I said in that episode was if you haven't like looked in the last 12 months, you should look now just to see what's out there because things change fast and there's things have been moving quickly in, in that regard for, as far as how much a single anesthesiologist can make with a single job in a single place. Now, the corollary to this, the we'll call it the private practice corollary, is that uh, attracting and retaining anesthesiologists is getting difficult because of locums and just because there's you know a bidding war, sort of, for anesthesia talent out there. So I'm curious to hear what you have seen in your consulting and in the, you know, the anesthesia company that you run. I know you help people negotiate a lot of these types of contracts that touch on this topic. So what are you seeing as you're helping practices navigate these dynamics? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing, as you said, labor costs have, have skyrocketed. So I was thinking about this and looking back through some of our internal data this morning. Basically, from 2018, when we started our company to now, the labor costs of anesthesiologists and CRNAs has almost tripled, uh, very Whoa. very close to tripled on, on a day on a day to day basis, right? So I mean, it doesn't mean that they're making you know three times as much money total, but when, it, when you look at a day-to-day basis, what does it cost to have an anesthesiologist or a CRNA in there? About three times and probably double since COVID. I would, you know, I'm not a prognosticator, but I would say that we've got another three to five years of escalating escalating salaries, escalating labor costs uh, as well. So, I mean, my prediction, 50 to 100% increase in labor costs in the next three to five years as well. So the, the big problem with this is, the labor costs are increasing and the reimbursement from insurance is either flat if you're lucky or decreasing thanks to the no surprises act which obviously we can get into later and is a big 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 topic in anesthesia so somebody's got to make up this difference and so so you know we want to talk a little bit about the private practice before we get into some of the other some of the other ideas how do you get somebody how do you keep somebody it's it's tough right now. I think that every practice we look at, maybe with the exception of ours, I'll toot, toot our horn there a little bit too, and I can give you a little, I can give you a little background on why that is. But it feels like every practice out there is is short providers. So in terms um, of tripling of costs, I'm curious. Do you feel like this is just a a normalization? Like finally, it, we're paying these people as much as it should have cost to have them all along, 
or is this like an artificial bubble or how do you process what you're seeing? You know, I, I think that the labor market was a bit low. The salaries and the and the the compensation was a bit low, maybe 20-25%. I think what happened was supply and demand. So you look at at 2018-2019 there was a small increase in in salaries and compensation, again maybe 25-30%, which I would expect to to continue year over year. 15 10-15-20-25%. What happened was during COVID Everything shut down, obviously. So nobody was making any money. A lot of people, anesthesiologists and CRNAs retired, just said, this is not worth it to me anymore. I'm out. And I think in the meantime, there was a, a big change in mindset for anesthesiologists and CRNAs and AAs as well, although we, we don't have a huge AA practice. So I don't speak to that a lot, but I, you know, I include all anesthesia providers in our discussion. Uh, just a, a big change in mindset where people said, why am I killing myself, taking call, staying in a private practice group or even a, a large national group where I have a non-compete and all this kind of stuff? They they just said, it's not worth it to me anymore. These people need me. And, and I think, I don't know that it, that it was necessarily conscious, but at least subconsciously, people said they need me more than I need. I They need me more than I need them. So I'm going to charge them what I want to charge them and I'm going to float around. And that's what we're we're seeing in the market in general. Basically, nobody wants a full-time job anymore. Everybody wants to go around, pick out their schedule. I want to work two weeks a month, three weeks a month. I'll go wherever. I'll charge whatever I want. Everybody will pretty much pay it. And then the other two weeks a month, I get to do whatever I want. So Those darn millennials. No work ethic these days. <laughs> It's it's not just the millennials. It's uh it's all the way from the the boomers that are left in practices all the way down to Gen Z. It's everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, as a you know, from my angle as somebody who's a physician advocate and also a an independent practice advocate, I uh I think that these developments are they're they're concerning. Well, they're on one hand concerning. But for an individual doctor who wants autonomy and can now choose their own adventure to a much greater degree than they've been able to do before, that's it's nice Fair. to have those kinds of options. So how are you helping practices who are trying to address the, you know, it's tough to fill your schedule <laughs> with care providers if you've got to patch it together a week at a time. So what kinds of things are people doing to, do, to address this? So let me let me talk about this kind of on a few different fronts. Um, if, if you're talking about your classic private practice, we have a consultative division of our of our company, and we've helped a few practices lately. And I think the what's what's happening is a lot of these private practices, and even to some degree larger national groups, have had great insurance contracts or at least decent insurance contracts that were able to cover labor costs. And so they didn't ask for subsidies, especially from surgery centers, but but from some hospitals as well. And so what we've really done with these practices in the past, probably two years, year and a half, two years, when they call us, we say, hey, listen, you have to develop some way to make sure that you're going to get the revenue that you need to survive. And so often what we recommend is a revenue guarantee. So we need X amount of dollars per year, whatever we collect that comes off that off that X amount of dollars. And, and that's how we decide how much money the hospital is going to pay. And now ASCs as well. That That's the biggest thing we've done. I mean, almost every practice we've gone into, we've either recommended they have one because they didn't in the past or recommended they increase it because of the cost of labor going up and and the reimbursements not being what they were either. 
Talk a little bit about what a subsidy is and sort of the, the economics. Like, what does the math problem look like in terms of the revenue for the anesthesia company? What are the variables there? And what where does a subsidy fit into that? Yeah, there's a couple different ways that, that you can charge a facility for anesthesia and a few different models. So, so probably the easiest model to explain is the employed model. That's pretty simple. So the anesthesia set of anesthesia providers is employed by the hospital or the surgery center. The surgery center pays them a salary. X amount of dollars per year, the surgery center of the hospital collects the money from the insurance companies and they get to keep that money. They pay out to the anesthesia providers. It's essentially like having a, a job at Walmart, right? Same thing. Then you've got a straight subsidy. Okay. So that's where, where a facility or a group goes to a facility and says, we need you to pay us. Let's just make up a number, a thousand dollars a year. Obviously that's not realistic, but we need you to pay us a thousand dollars a year you get anesthesia coverage for $1,000 a year, period. And so every year, the hospital writes them a check for $1,000. The anesthesia group provides services. That's the way it goes. What's probably more common these days... Oh, sorry, go ahead. You were gonna and say in that one, uh, is the hospital or the facility doing the billing and the revenue cycle and capturing no, dollars? Typically not. Okay. Typically not. The anesthesia group is doing the billing and collecting and capturing the dollars. And we can talk about sort of the offshoots of that when I get to the revenue guarantee part as well. There are models where the hospital wants to do their own billing and collecting and then, you know, pay the additional subsidy to the anesthesia group. Oftentimes that's big hospital systems, national hospital systems who say, we'll do our own internal billing. You don't, we don't need you to do that. That's very appealing to me and to a lot of anesthesia groups because revenue cycle management is the most difficult part of running an anesthesia group by far. Hmm. Um, you know, denials from insurance companies, the whole no surprises act, patients not paying their bills, patients not paying their co-pays, co-deductibles, co-insurance, all that kind of stuff. So got it. Uh, and then you said there's a, a third model worth considering. Yeah. So the third model would be the yeah, would be the revenue guarantee model. So the revenue guarantee model uh basically says anesthesia group, you know, NUCO LLC goes to the hospital and says, we need $10 million a year to survive as a group. That means that you are responsible ultimately because we provide you services for that $10 million. What we'll do is we'll do the billing and collecting. And if we collect $5 million, you only need to pay us $5 million. If we collect $11 million, you don't pay us anything. We keep the difference. Oftentimes when it comes to a large hospital, you know, you're paying for call, you're paying for a lot of overage and flexibility where there's a lot of anesthesia providers sitting around all day long. And so in that case, the hospital often pays a lot of money. When you get to smaller surgery centers, good payer mixes, that sort of stuff, sometimes that's very, very minimal uh, mm -hmm. amount of, of revenue guarantee. And so that's the model we typically, we typically recommend and typically use just because that gives the hospital some incentive to be more efficient, to bring more cases and, and work as a partner as opposed to either adversaries or sort of not even caring about each other. So so in a world in which reimbursement continues to decline and some of these groups have contracts with hospitals or other sites and they don't have this type of revenue guarantee, you know, if you walk into the president's office of the anesthesia group and you say, listen, here's what, here's how it's got to be. You got to like take this and take it to your hospital. How do you encourage them to frame that conversation? Are there any tools or any, you know, it's obviously jarring to take that to a C-suite hospital person and say, Hey, we need 3 million bucks when last year the number was zero. 
how do you justify the value that you're continuing to bring in that context? That's admittedly a, a difficult conversation. So typically, when when you go into the hospital administration or C-suite and say we need a subsidy or we need a revenue guarantee, you're already a well-established group, right? They're not unhappy with your services. I, I would never recommend that, that a group who knows the hospital is unhappy with their services do this, right? You got to fix the, the service issues before you go in and ask for money. Typically, what we do is we lay out a budget, though. And so, you know, Group X has 20 providers, uh, whatever, 10 uh, MDAs, 10 CRNAs. We lay out the budget. This is what it's going to cost us. We show the hospital, here's labor cost. This is the only way we will be able to recruit and maintain anesthesia providers. Here's our, you know, overhead expenses. And here's the little bit of margin that we need to maintain to keep our business going. And here it is. And that's why we're asking for $10 million. You know, none of us are getting rich off of this. We're just trying to maintain our business and keep the services going. The other thing that we often recommend is that you show them a locums cost. Hey, we talked to three different locums companies. Here's the locums cost per day multiplied by the shortage of providers per day multiplied by 365 days per year. You can pay us 10 million or you can go to the locums market and pay them 30 million. Yeah. So we just show them data. That's that's what they want to see. So, And then in that few seconds as the CEO is like, the numbers are flashing in their brain. They're trying to figure out how long do I need to pay locums money before I can replace this anesthesia group with a cheaper anesthesia group, potentially, as they're looking at all options. And so, you know, one of the things that I've always said is that the groups that, and I'm interested in your perspective on this. We can talk about this, Brian. The interest, the the group that has the best relationship with hospital leadership, the most integration with perioperative care, with the ICU, with scheduling, with all these things, like you want those CEOs to think, I could never dream of running this hospital without this anesthesia group because they know where all the bodies are buried, no pun intended, and they can uh, help us continue to operate efficiently. They're not a replaceable cog. They're an invaluable strategic partner. I would totally agree with that. I mean, if they if they go out to the open market, the best they're going to do, at least in our experience, is maybe 10% better, right? And that that is bare bones, minimum you know, subsidy or revenue guarantee for a group. One of these national groups might come in and do it and we can sort of pontificate about whether the national groups are doing a good job or not. That's a whole different issue. But yeah, if you're, if you're talking about going into the hospital and saying, hey, we need this much money and the, and the administrator goes out and he looks and he says, okay, well, I can save 6% by going with this group. And it's a, it's a wholesale change in our practice and our providers or we've got this group, they do a great job. They do perioperative surgical home. They do ERAS. They do all of the committees. They make sure that the pharmacy has the right drugs, that we're not going to get that. It's not worth a 6% savings. Let's just pay these guys. And that that tends to be what we find. But again, if you're if you're a marginal private practice group or you've lost you know, half your group and now you're telling the, the hospital, we can only run half the rooms per day, they're already upset with you, they're likely to change. So you're finding in the conversations that you're seeing that groups are having this discussion successfully when they have the credibility to have it. Yep. That's what I would say for sure. Absolutely. And then in terms of, uh, you know, what you see on like the staffing side, can you talk a little bit about what people are paying to have locums come in and, and how that has changed over time? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that in generalities. Essentially, our, our company, I mean, our book of business is probably 90% staffing. I probably get 15 to 20 phone calls a day across 
it's maybe five states. Um, you have an answering and, service for all those? <laughs> oh, it's me. It's usually me. I have two partners, so they handle some of it too. But And maybe across 60, 70, 80 facilities per day, we'll get those calls. There's always a need, always. In general, the if you're looking at the cost of a locums or a, you know, we don't call it, we call ourselves a staffing company because we're very particular about who we bring on. We don't send just anybody. We don't have a large group of recruiters calling providers that they don't know and saying, you know, we need you to come work at this random hospital in general. And some of this, I got to be a little bit careful about in general, the rates are about two to two and a half times what you would be paying for a full-time provider, give or take. Now that's, that's equalizing a little bit as groups higher on people and hospitals and ASCs are paying more revenue guarantees. So that that's coming up kind of closer, but I would say in general for the past three, four years, it's two to two and a half times per day for a locums as it would be for a, uh, a full-time provider. And when you're working as a strategic partner with these sites, how do the conversations go? What types of things are you encouraging them to think about? Like if you want to have a, a viable, you know, staffing model or empl- whether it's employees or like the, you want to be working with a group that can, you know, keep your ORs humming, like what are the levers to pull and buttons to push that these hospital CEOs are, are looking at? Yeah. So we definitely talk about models, right? What model are you using? Are you using the most efficient model, both in terms of providers and in terms of of room coverage? I mean, I have a lot of conversations about vertical scheduling and not giving a surgeon a room for one case or overlapping by 15 minutes, meaning having to have two separate anesthesia providers for a 15 minute overlap, not giving a slower surgeon a swing room. You can give him two rooms, but don't give him two anesthesia providers. So that these are conversations you have to have and you have to say like, listen, I'm not the one, you know, new co-anesthesia group's not the one who's going to have this conversation with the surgeon. Your hospital needs to have this conversation with the surgeon of this is what the cost is. So we're not going to do this anymore. You mentioned the No Surprises Act. This is something that, you know, we, I think it was about a, over a year ago now, we, I broached this topic on this show and have been following it closely. Very curious. It seemed like it could be a wholesale shift in the way that it was going to have a lot of downstream consequences that were perhaps unintended or perhaps intended, depending on who you talk to and all of that. I'm curious, what implications have you seen of the No Surprises Act? And what are the things that have surprised you, if anything? And I know there are parts of it that are kind of still stuck in the mud a little bit. And it, there's a lot that's still up in the air, but what is your observations about how that's been working out so far for the specialty? Yeah. So just a little background on the No Surprises Act passed, I believe it was January 1st, 2022 is when it in, went into effect. Essentially what that says is we as consultative type providers, and that includes anesthesia, ER, pathology, there's a few other uh, radiology, radiology, there's yeah. a few other specialties that are thrown in there. We cannot balance bill a patient if they are out of network. And if we do, there's some rules about if we do, how we have to do it. We have to let them know ahead of time that we're out of network and this is what our cost might be. And so there's a, a lot of rules that you can you can still do it, but it's just really not worth it. Then the insurance company, if we are out of network, will pay us a certain amount. If we don't agree with that amount, we go through an independent dispute resolution where we go back and forth with some arbitrator somewhere. The loser of that 
usually the anesthesia group from our experience gets to pay $200 for that IDR cost. So when you're talking about, you know, reimbursement rates on cases or reimbursements on cases of anywhere from 150 to maybe on the high end, a thousand or $1,500, $200 is just in the general, not worth it to try to, to try to fight. And so the, the idea behind the No Surprises Act, I understand patients were getting large bills from these out-of-network companies or providers, but essentially all this has done, at least from my perspective and what we're seeing out in the open market, is it's emboldened the insurance companies to pay us less. And so we we haven't taken a cut, but we certainly haven't gotten a COLA and we certainly uh, cost of living adjustment, and we certainly haven't gotten them to negotiate with us since. A lot of large anesthesia companies who had great insurance contracts are finding that either they're getting pushed out of network. And there was, I think there was a big case in Texas that the Texas Society of Anesthesiology is fighting right now, or they're getting their reimbursement rates cut significantly, 60, 70% cuts. And so I think the unintended downstream consequence or intended downstream consequence is further depressing the amount of reimbursement that anesthesia providers and groups are getting. Again, that money's got to be made up somewhere. It's not going to be made up by cutting labor costs. So the only way this is being made up is it's all shifting the cost to the facilities. It is a little bit interesting, and I won't go into huge detail, but at least in our experience, um, you know, we do the best we can to get in network with every payer. I mean, and I'll, I'll say that ahead of time. There are in certain instances when you go into a new market or a new facility, smaller payers that maybe you're not in network with or who may use a, a larger clearinghouse service, then there's a lot of those out there. For those particular uh, instances, what we're finding is pretty good reimbursement when they come and negotiate with us for out-of-network rates. So it's it's an interesting dynamic there. The a lot of the a lot of the payers that we're in network with aren't really being fair or helping out or or increasing colas and all that sort of stuff. But the the payers that we are out of network with not intentionally seem to be paying relatively well, which is interesting. It is interesting. And it kind of shows you like how arbitrary a lot of this stuff is. And and I've spoken to some people who have done the independent dispute resolution. And I think in general, the arbitrators have been relatively fair, but the risk is just so high that I don't think a lot of people want to do that. So, And there was the recent hike of the cost per resolution decision i think i I read about it recently i I think it was a later development but you can correct me if i'm wrong and that that was a big part of the problem too is like this is prohibitively expensive why are we paying somebody a quarter or a half of like the judgment value just to get the money that we feel like we should have gotten anyway it's very uh it's just not very friendly (laughs) to the people trying to get paid in this circumstance at least that's the argument that an anesthesia group would make well, and it's a lot harder for us as anesthesia groups to to eat the cost when our margins are low, as opposed to insurance companies eating a, a cost when their margins are high. So, I mean, it's it just it it's disadvantages us even more. Yeah, and in my view, I'm curious in your perspective on this. Kind of what we've seen the last, you know, you you said that like it's tripled in the last three years the cost of staff. I, I think the dislocate the pressure. You know the cutting, 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 cutting of the uh, the work RVU or the ASA unit on the phys- the fee schedule from Medicare, and a lot of these, the you know asking more and more and more of, of finally so many doctors are like screw this like I'm not going down with the ship anymore, 
it has resulted in what is functionally, you know, if you think about the economics of the OR and like the the components of the RVU calculation, like how much is going to the surgeon, how much is going to anesthesia, how much is going to the facility, it used to be that those variables in that calculation should approximate the cost of having the surgeon do the surgery, having the anesthesiologist do the anesthesia, and the overhead required to go to the hospital to keep the hospital running. As more and more of the money has gone to the other variables in that equation, what we're seeing is fundamentally, I think it's the it's it's becoming very obvious that the the RVU system, the work RVU number in particular, or the ASA unit for anesthesiologists, is just not even remotely like talk to a CEO about, you know, how much are you billing on that anesthesiologist for the work that they're doing? And then how much are you needing to pay that anesthesiologist to have them come and do the work? It just shows you that we're not even in the ballpark in terms of the calibration of this system and the couple decades of cuts that have persisted over that time. And it's interesting at the end of the day, like you got to pay somebody what you need to pay them to do the work or else no one's going to run your OR. And it kind of unmasks just how I would argue, like how unfair it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we can't talk about commercial rates, but we can certainly talk about Medicare rates, which mm-hmm. are around $22 a unit. So if you did a full day, a hundred units in that day, which is probably a 15 hour day, really humming along. So you would have to do that every single day. Let's say that you did a hundred unit day at $22 a unit. That's $2,200. I mean, if you look at the average salary of, of CRNAs, pushing probably 300,000 plus the average salary of anesthesiologists, 550,000 plus Cal- back, calculate that at $2,200 a day, you can't survive. There's, there's absolutely no way if you did all Medicare that you could survive even working a 15 hour day, seven days a week. Yeah. So you know, I don't know what the expectation is. And I think a lot of anesthesiologists and CRNAs are just going to say if the if the hospitals at some point say we're not we're not paying a subsidy, we're not paying a revenue guarantee, and the reimbursements don't go up, a lot of anesthesiologists and CRNAs are going to say, "I'm done with this. I'll go do something else. I'm a smart person. I can figure out something else to do." So, and we're seeing it happen right now. Brian, tell me about you know. I know that you are a you're an entrepreneur. You're a clinician, obviously, and you're a consultant but you're a guy who has other things going on at any given time. Share with me a little bit about some of the other things you're working on, if anything. Yeah, working on a few different things. Obviously, we have our our staffing uh, company that I think has been a great kind of bob and weave for us, a zigzag for us. And then personally, I'm sort of setting up a brand. I've hired a a social media company. And so we're we're working on getting a brand out there. I have an an expertise in regional anesthesia. Uh, I think we do things uniquely and, and well just working on getting that out to the public, trying to uh, get some videos and, and and a website online to be able to share that with other anesthesiologists, CRNAs, AAs, as well as uh, at, at some point down the line, we'd like to start doing some classes as well. I have people come in and actually do real stuff with, with regional anesthesia. You know, we're, we're going online and I, I was going to share, you know, my Instagram is at Dr. Brian Schmutzler, and I'll give this to you to, to post on the show notes. And then obviously on Facebook, my name as well, Brian Schmutzler. And then we're we're working on getting that website launched. The other thing we're doing is just short, sort of sharing pearls about anesthesia, both for providers as well as patients. And so we've got a few things online where we, you know, talk about is anesthesia the same as sleep and just sort of kind of random questions like that. So the videos you're doing, is it mostly clinically focused or is it some practice management stuff too? 
primarily clinically focused. We haven't gotten into the practice management side of things yet, although that's a good idea. So I'll, I'll credit that to you once we get into that into that realm. Yeah, we we're, you know we're filming sort of scanning models as well as doing some actual blocks on patients, uh, de-identified obviously, but as some actual blocks on patients and and presenting those as a as a way to teach the way that we do regional anesthesia for these types of cases. Great. So for our listeners, apmsuccess.com slash 191. This is episode 191. You can see all the links that Brian just mentioned and check out the work that he and his colleagues are doing there. Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. You too. You too. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.